This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with RoomNow. Today's QD Clinic is brought to you by RoomNow's virtual ACR 2020 coverage. You give us two hours, we'll give you the ACR. Today's case is a discussion of which IL-1 inhibitor should I use. I treat a lot of patients with autoinflammatory disease. I'm a self-declared king expert of Stills disease. That's because no one will fight me for the title. And, um, and I use a lot of IL-1 in inhibitors. You know, there's three on the market. There's Rolonicept, um, which is given every eight weeks. There's Kanakinumab, which is given generally every four weeks. And then there's Anakinra, which is given um, every day. So when I'm treating someone either with Stills disease or FMF or Schnitzler syndrome or, you know, hyper IgD syndrome that, you know, these are all IL-1 responsive disorders. The question is, which one do I use? Heretofore, I almost always use Anakinra first. One, because it's cheaper than the other ones. They're all really expensive these days because these drugs are indicated for very rare disorders, so that jacks up the price quite a bit. But I tend to use Anakinra because it's very short-acting and has a half-life of six hours. It works pretty quick. And it also is dissolved pretty quick, meaning when you stop it, its effect goes away and people will flare within one, two, three days on Anakinra. The other ones are antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, which have a much longer half-life. So again, previously I would use Anakinra as my starting drug. And once the patient had gotten used to daily injections of Anakinra and had done well, then I would switch them over to Kanakinumab, usually either when they complained of daily injections or um, I was concerned about compliance or the insurance companies were giving me a hard time. The equation changes more recently with the FDA approval of Kanakinumab for um, adult Stills disease. It's actually the only drug that's approved for adult Stills disease. Now, there are, again, the other uh, IL-1 inhibitors. Anakinra is approved, as you know, in, uh, for use in RA and also for CAPS, the cryopyrin-associated periodic syndromes. Um, and then uh, Kanakinumab is also approved for systemic JIA, um, the uh, CAPS, FMF, hyper-IGD syndrome, and TRAPS. And Rolonicept is only approved for just CAP disorders. So when treating RA, you have an FDA approval for Anakinra. When treating Stills disease in the kids, um, you really, or adults, you really only have an FDA approval for uh, Kanakinumab or Ilaris. Again, the differences here are uh, the half-life, six hours for Anakinra, 26 days for Kanakinumab. And so the dosing regimens are either daily for Anakinra or every four weeks for Kanakinumab. The doses are 100 or 200 milligrams given daily at night with Anakinra. I use it at night because most of the fever occurs at night and it's a very short half-life drug. Some people will require 200 and that's higher than the prescribed dose. But when you're treating hot, red, inflammatory, systemic auto-inflammatory disease, you might need higher than normal doses that you would use in RA or other disorders. Um, when you're using canakinumab, the dose is either 150 or 300 milligrams given every four weeks. Now, these are sub-Q administered drugs. The, um, you know, the, they do have the problem of, uh, of uh, ISRs, injection site reactions, that usually go away after a month or so. Um, and they're never 
um, serious adverse events where, or hospitalizable or the lesions are usually just red um, elevated urticarial but not itchy lesions and not mild discomfort that again will go away with repeated injections. So um, which one do I use now? That's really the big question. I think it depends on what the need for rapid control or chronic control is. I think the onset of anakinra is an advantage, but its disadvantages as a daily injection. And you have to rotate sites, and patients don't usually like to inject their abdomen that much, and they run out of sites on their legs, uh, and God forbid they're using their upper arms or buttocks. Uh, but if I'm looking for chronic control, maybe I can acutely control the condition with steroids. Uh, often if I'm using an IL-1 inhibitor, I'm usually using a background of methotrexate or another DMART. Um, and then you could use canakinumab as your first drug as well. Um, if you're fighting the fight with insurance for FD, you know, that this is not an approved drug, well then your only option for Stills disease is going to be uh, canakinumab because it's not approved for um, stills in kids or in adults with anakinra. So that's my two cents on uh, IL-1 inhibitors. Again, tune into room now for expanded coverage of the ACR 2020 meeting. If you only had two hours or four hours to, to review the ACR, and you can do it asynchronously, you can do it at, at night or during the meeting or in the morning before the meeting, um, it's all gonna be online. How would you do this? I mean, you can go to the ACR website, it's gonna be good or you can go to our website, roomnow.com, and see perspectives by key opinion leaders, see a lot of videos, a number of podcasts, panel discussions, um, takeaway message, messages, all on video or audio, and then there's gonna be written content by our faculty of over 24 people covering the meeting. So tune in to Room Now starting November 1st all the way through the 13th. We'll talk to you tomorrow on QD Clinic. Welcome to QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. This episode is brought to you by Room Now's virtual coverage of ACR 2020. Reporting, analysis, and perspective, that's what we're gonna do on the website. Be sure to check it out. Today's case, what to do when it's not RA. So I saw this patient last week, 70-year-old um, gal, who had been diagnosed 20 years ago with rheumatoid arthritis. At the time, the patient had bilateral swollen wrists. Sounds like RA. It was inflammatory. It didn't respond to whatever treatment she got. She didn't remember, but she did get bilateral synovectomies, which were inconclusive, meaning that's kind of what you get when you do a synovial biopsy in RA. It's chronic inflammation and, you know, you, you don't usually see germinal centers or things that are truly diagnostic. So she was treated as someone who had rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, and her rheumatoid tests were supposedly positive. She says that early on she got um, a TNF inhibitor that was infused and boy, fabulous response. She also got methotrexate and when she could no longer afford the infusible TNF inhibitor, she was maintained on methotrexate and gee, that was almost good enough. And then six months ago, she uh, ran out of methotrexate. Her doctor, you know, why, why do you stop drugs? Well, you know, the doctor retired, um, lost the prescription, um, COVID-19, you know, dog ate my homework, a million and one reasons why people stop their medicine. She stopped her medicines and she thinks that since then she's gotten worse. The thing is, when you examine the patient, 
She's got fairly normal looking hands, except she's got scars over both wrists and limitation of motion where she really can't flex and extend as she should, suggesting there's damage there. What from? I don't know. But the rest of the exam, pretty much normal. Tender, a few tender points, and that's really the source of her pain. She does sleep lousy. But RA synovitis, no. RA deformities, no. MTP possibilities, not a chance. Nodules don't exist. It's not RA, at least not now. Um, so that's sort of the first discussion. Patient comes in with a firm belief that it's rheumatoid arthritis, and it no longer is. I think I always take the tact, I wasn't there 20 years ago when you had all this going on, and gee, it sure sounded like rheumatoid arthritis. The good news is that it's no longer a problem. You don't have to have rheumatoid arthritis for the rest, for your whole life. RA does burn out after 20 or 30 years, seldom after five years, and maybe this is a case of burnt out RA. Well, she had lab tests done, and she is in fact seronegative for rheumatoid factor, CCP, ANA, Uric acid was normal, got a fairly normal looking lab, no signs of chronic inflammation or hypoalbuminemia or hyper um, anything or LFT elevations, they're all normal. So again, the good news is RA is not in play, but you do have pain. We do know that it's myofascial. You may have some degenerative damage and or mechanical damage to whatever you did in your wrist. So the first question is explaining how RA can go away and RA does burn out. The second question is, um, what is going on? And I think that the longer someone has a history like this, um, the more you're calling it maybe now difficult or refractory disease, or you, maybe you've gone through and tried a number of DMARs and tried a number of biologics or tried a number of, of small molecule targeted synthetic DMARs and you're not getting better, you should st now start to rethink that this is no longer immune mediated or inflammatory. And you should be thinking, that, number one, the problem could be structural. And I think if that's the case, then imaging usually is um, going to give you the most um, telltale answers on what to do and how to proceed. Next, that the problem could be periarticular. Uh, that's really evident in cases of shoulder and knee where you can quite commonly have in these burnt out patients, you know, rotator cuff disease and or meniscal tears and other periarticular damage. The same could exist also in the feet and in the hands, uh, and you may need to involve specialists. You need to exclude weakness as the cause for pain, and especially as people burn out and get older. So I tend to rely on su in such patients on imaging, um, orthopedic and physical medicine referrals, um, and PT when necessary when dealing with the issue of uh, weakness. If you're not strong, you're gonna hurt. If you hurt, you're gonna get weak. If you weak, get weak, you're gonna hurt more. Again, there's a spiral of weakness and pain. And of course, people can have, as this patient did, myofascial pain or fibromyalgia related to poor sleep. Interestingly, a colleague of mine had the similar question at a recent Grand Rounds that I did on um, changing paradigms, where I uh, was saying that, you know, what I do in managing people, and the question that she put forward to me is, and someone who would think has burnt out RA, what do you do? When do you use a DMARD? Well, I do what I just said. I think structural, I think weakness, I think periarticular, ortho imaging, PMNR as my solutions rather than DMARDs. When would I use a DMARD? I use a DMARD when I can prove by exam 
or by imaging that synovitis, tenosynovitis, and synovial, flu uh, uh, flu synovial fluid effusions is something that a DMARD might be indicated. I don't use DMARDs for pain. I don't use DMARDs for elevated sed rate and CRP. I don't use DMARDs for x-rays. X-rays are going to change. X-rays are what you have, x-ray findings of erosions and damage is damage. The damage is already done. I'm again, again, you have to be clear about what the goal of DMARD therapy and DMARD initiation is going to be. So what do you do when it's not RA? Well, number one, make the decision it's not RA. And number two, move on to these other options. Again, reporting, analysis, perspectives. Follow us at Room Now during ACR 2020. Take care. This is QD Clinic. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now's coverage of virtual ACR 2020 coming up in November. We've got the speakers, teachers, faculty. We need the interactors. That's you. Today's case is the trigger finger. The patient's about 65 years old, uh, well managed with knee OA, hand OA, history of diabetes, male, um, doing very well and all of a sudden comes in with a new urgent appointment and turns out my finger keeps getting stuck, doc, and they show you their finger that looks like this, although it's not stuck at this time. Um, and of course it's trigger finger. They thought it was a Dupuytren's contracture, and in fact it's just a trigger finger. Intermittent, pain, uh, clicking, catching, uh, when it gets stuck, it hurts. When it, they try to open, it hurts. You know, trigger finger is not uncommon. Who gets it? Um, as you get older, although it starts usually around age 50, uh, peaks around age 60, and is not uncommon in the elderly. Diabetics, women, people with osteoarthritis, even inflammatory arthritis, uh, sometimes trauma, you can get a nodule on that, um, that tendon. Uh, and that gets stuck in the pulley as the tendon goes through the pulley and that is basically the pathophysiology of the trigger finger. The objective would be to reduce the size of the nodular change that occurs. What fingers are most affected by this? As you might imagine, it's the ring finger first, then the middle finger next, and then the index finger. It's seldom or less frequent on the thumb. It's pretty infrequent on the pinky. So the question is, how do you manage this? Uh, I thought this was really humorous. I actually looked it up. I have my management of it, and I'm wondering if it sort of jives with your management of it. But if you look up the treatment of trigger finger, uh, the literature is really bad. And it, the literature is all very self-serving. Um, meaning that if you're a surgeon, the literature is all about the success of surgery. You know, surgery on the A1 pulley, and, and you know, it's 50 to 80% effective. If you're not a surgeon, you're talking about, you know, actually there's an interesting article from the Mayo Clinic this year um, called uh, Just Shoot It, Trigger Finger, Just Shoot, meaning obviously they're a big advocate for local injections. There's three approaches. There's conservative, there's local injections, and then there's surgery. Uh, by the way, in my opinion, um, half the patients work with conservative management. That meaning you don't do surgery, you don't inject, you tell the patient rest. I like the idea of using a um, ice cube. An ice cube is about the size of this room now chip. I tell the patient take the ice cube, put it in a paper towel, 
put it right there on, the, on that trigger finger three times a day for 10 days. You're trying to shrink the size of the nodule. It's kind of the same as basically putting a splint on the hand, uh, not using the hand, using some reminder to reduce the activity. That's conservative management, with or without uh, an analgesic drug or a non-steroidal if that's tolerated. But basically, immobilization, ice, usual principles, and for the most part, time is taking care of the problem. That works in half the patients. Of the, in my, this is my, these are my numbers. The other half get steroid injections. And I often ask patients, what do you want? I can give you a steroid injection right there, or um, and I can, we, can, we can do the ice you know, three times a day for, and you'll leave it on for, again, 10 to 15 minutes until it melts. Or we can do the steroid injection, uh, and in my experience, they both work about half the time. The point being, conservative management works in 50%. Of those in whom it doesn't work, you do a steroid injection, and that works in 50%. The literature on steroid injections, by the way, is somewhere between 50 and 70% effective when you use local infiltrated steroids, not into the tendon, but peritendinous around the nodule, usually going in right at the crease here and going proximal to the nodule. Um, or just distal to the nodule, um, proximal to the crease. Uh, and then surgery. And I don't know what the success of those guys are, but the hand surgeons say, oh yeah, we fix these all the time. So very few of my patients have progressed to surgery with trigger finger. Most time can take care of it, and getting to that time point that they're gonna get better, you can either use an injection, or you can use, um, again, conservative management. Systemic therapies don't work here. I mean, I would not use systemic steroids I would not use disease-modifying drugs. Uh, Non-steroidals, I don't think, really make much of a difference other than taking care of local pain. That's trigger finger. It happens a lot. thought you'd want to know my perspective. Check out Room Now's coverage of the meeting. Again, we need interactors, people to learn and to basically teach us what they think about what we're saying about the meeting. Hopefully, it's going to be you. We'll see you then. Hi, this is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now and where you spend your time smartly when going to a virtual meeting like the ACR, consider it. This case is the diagnosis and treatment of peripheral spondyloarthritis. The patient is a 25-year-old uh, African-American female who is B27 positive. She presented to me a few years ago with recurrent uveitis and hip pain. Turns out she would have intermittent knee synovitis and effusions that would need to be drained, occasionally injected. She was on non-steroidals. She's been through the ringer, meaning she's had recurrent uveitis. She's without damage, thankfully. She's had uh, recurrent knee effusions and oligoarthritis. She's had severe progressive hip disease and damage requiring a total hip replacement. All the while, a few years of this while taking etanercept and then adalimumab, and then sertilizumab, and then IV golimumab. And you know, they kind of worked. They might have been better at controlling her uveitis than her arthritis, but boy, it never really worked. So what happened next? We put her on an IL-17 inhibitor. We put her on secukinumab thinking, this will work, this will be great. Wrong. Um, four months of that was horrendous like really a few of the TNF inhibitors she took. I mean, it's really unusual why she doesn't seem to respond to anything. And then we put her on infliximab and now she's had a miraculous response. I mean, five milligrams per kilogram has been just fabulous. So where are the pitfalls here? Number one, the diagnosis. 
peripheral spondyloarthritis means no axial disease. Uh, her diagnosis is established by her uveitis. She had some early inflammatory-like back pain, but I wasn't convinced. And her x-rays of her SI joint multiple times have been negative. She's had hip damage and hip replacements. She's had Achilles tendonitis, and she's had an oligosynovitis in the knees. So she meets the ASAS cl classification criteria. Look, this is what they show. You can see on the right, if you have peripheral arthritis, you can have enthesitis and have the diagnosis, or you can have arthritis, enthesitis, and inflammatory low back pain. Uh, again, she's been cinched by having her recurrent uveitis and her peripheral inflammatory disease. She happens to be B27 negative, um, but yet she responds very well to drugs that would work just as well in B27 positive individuals. So the diagnosis needs to be established and a little more difficult in people who have peripheral disease. The next is going to be treatment. And she's been difficult. Nosteroidals, no effect. Steroids, intraarticularly some effect, but really oral, no effect at all. And then she's been through the ringer. Three and a half, four years, four biologics, uh, TNF inhibitors, no effect. Um, another less than half year with an IL-17 inhibitor, really no effect there. And it wasn't until she got a Fliximab. So the point is maybe sometimes you do have to go through five TNF inhibitors. My goodness, that's so far against what I have said in the past. But, you know, live and learn. Trial and error is sometimes the best way to learn. Um, I'm glad she's doing very well on this, but you have to be persistent. The question is, what would happen if she didn't respond to the um, moderate to high dose of infliximab? She's on five milligrams per kilogram. Well, number one, um, IL-23 inhibitors don't seem to have much effect in axial disease. No, not sure what they would do with peripheral spondyloarthropathy. Not been tested. Next, your option could be another IL-17 inhibitor like ixekizumab or any of the others coming up in the future. Um, would she do well with an IL-12-23 inhibitor like um, ustekinumab? Uh, I probably would not try her on a primalas because I'm not sure it really would work in something like this. But those are the remaining options when really frustrated, and thankfully, I'm not really frustrated on this case. That's it for this episode of QD Clinic. Tune in for more. This is QD Clinic, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by the ACR meeting. ACR 2020 has gone virtual. You need to go to Room Now. Our case today is gout goes chronic. Gout certainly can be an acute and even a chronic disorder. What about this case? 66-year-old African-American female comes in with a history of gout that's going back to about six, seven years. She says the onset of gout was left toe swelling with pain, redness, swelling, um, swelling so bad that it, you know, it was, it was red and hot and couldn't step on it. Classic. Um, she went to her family doctor, was given um, colchicine, got better, had another attack, and then was started on allopurinol. Um, initially 100 milligrams, then later 300. Yet on 300 milligrams a day, she has about five attacks in the last year. This is what she says. She says her attacks last seven to 10 days, and they're usually only relieved by Medrol dose packs or uh, five-day courses of steroids. But th those work really, really well. So it's not clear that her gout is well-controlled, um, although she says that she hasn't had an attack 
in the last three months when she comes in to see me. But she's coming in now because she has gout. She's had all these attacks. But she's got one problematic joint, and that is the ankle. She says the ankle's been a problem for like two or three years. Tender, swollen, wears, uses, uses crutches. It's always a problem. She's gone to orthopedists. They've really not done much. Um, they haven't done any imaging. It's not sure what orthopedist she went to who's not doing any imaging. But nonetheless, um, she's doing badly in that joint. Her current medicines are allopurinol, uh, and she also takes uh, a PRN nonsteroidals. But her ankle is, again, um, a real problem. Um, so I'm willing to give her the diagnosis of gout, acute recurrent gout. Not sure what to do with chronic one ankle monarthritis. I'm a little suspicious, in, especially in that it's not really swollen. When you uh, palpate the, the foot, the MTPs, the toes, they're all normal. Midfoot, all normal. The ankle, talocural, true ankle joint, all normal. No Achilles tendon problems. But she does have peroneal and posterior tibial tendonitis that is really exquisite. And worse, she says, when she stands on it. So she's got a periarticular problem. And then when we do testing, her uric acid's normal. Her uric acid is like five something. Her labs don't show any inflammation. Uh, X-rays were done previously, didn't show anything. I order an MRI and she's got a tear of the posterior tibial and just edema about both those tendons. So this now becomes an orthopedic problem. But is it really? Could this be um, monosodium urate and uric acid deposition uh, in a peritendinous way. Could this be a gouty problem in addition to a traumatic problem? This is going to have to be decided by the orthopedist. Of course, it may be better decided if we did dual energy CT scanning to show that she in fact does have urate deposits there. Uh, and we might do that. Um, I find that it's not easy to order. It's often not easy to interpret. Um, and it hasn't been quite the gold mine in my experience diagnostically and clinically in management, as it seems like it is in all the journal reports that I've reviewed on this. So again, this person has uh, acute gout that's kind of controlled right now. As long as her SUA is under five, I think we're good. She has no nodules or tophi. Um, but and that's where she is. She's right around five right now. But the question is, she's got this chronic ankle problem. So. I think the takeaway lesson on this was, you know, if you um, are not um, buying the presentation, if the behavior is not quite what you expect out of gout, if it doesn't smell like gout under these parameters, it's probably not going to be gout, and that's what her current biggest problem, the right ankle, is. It's not a gout problem, I don't believe. I think it's a traumatic um, issue. I mean, she's overweight, uh, and uh, and that along with whatever led to the, t the, the tendon leads to is giving her re-injury of that ankle. Again, if it doesn't respond, then maybe we'll consider deck scanning. This is what I think about when gout goes chronic. Tune in again for our coverage of ACR 2020. It's coming up soon.